As we expand the scope of breast-conserving surgery for patients with breast cancer, have we focused too much on the cosmetic results to the potential detriment of the oncologic outcome? It's a question that concerns some in the field of breast surgery who believe the evidence to establish clinical efficacy for certain procedures is not yet in. How can we address the potential pitfalls while maintaining the sound principles of oncologic surgery? You are listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Cancer. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery and Practicing General Surgeon, and our guest is Dr. Monica Morrow, Chief of the Breast Service in the Department of Surgery and the Ann Burnett Winford Chair of Clinical Oncology at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Welcome, Dr. Morrow. Thanks, Dr. Hill. Good to be here. Dr. Morrow, how has breast-conserving surgery evolved over the past few decades for patients with breast cancer? Well, I think it's important to understand we've come a long way with breast-conserving surgery. We now have a standard set of selection criteria. Most women with early-stage breast cancer, stage 1 and 2 invasive cancer, are eligible for breast conservation, and we can select them with a history of physical exam and a mammogram. And most importantly, local recurrence rates in the conserved breast have declined quite dramatically over the past 20 years. So now we see local recurrence in only about 5% of women at 10 years. And how does that compare with traditional modified radical mastectomy procedures? Actually, the local failure rates are almost statistically identical. Although people tend to focus on local recurrence after breast conservation, those levels are now as low as what we see after mastectomy. Now, when we talk about minimally invasive breast surgery or oncoplastic surgery, what exactly do these terms mean or what should they mean? Well, that's a good question because they don't have any standard definition. Minimally invasive breast surgery started out meaning things like lumpectomy, sentinel node biopsy. I think today when people use that term, they're really talking about endoscopic breast and axillary surgery. Now, oncoplastic surgery, on the other hand, implies a procedure that both treats the cancer and has good cosmetic outcomes. So it may be part of minimally invasive breast surgery, but not exactly the same thing. Now, when we talk about improving cosmesis, who is driving the desire for this? Is it the patient, the physician, both? What other factors are involved? Well, first of all, if you look at the outcomes of traditional breast-conserving therapy, about 90% of patients will rate their cosmetic outcome as excellent or good. Those are results that date back many years. So most patients are pretty satisfied with the outcome. Physicians tend to be a little bit more critical, so I would suspect some of the impetus for this is coming from physicians. Well, why are they critical? Well, I think that the conserved breast doesn't always look absolutely identical to the native breast. If you're a woman with cancer, we know clearly that your major concern in life is remaining cancer-free. So if you have your breast, you may accept some level of cosmetic deformity that somebody who's looking purely at the aesthetic outcome may not find quite so acceptable. What do you find in your practice, Dr. Morrow? Well, I think that the kind of cosmetic outcome you achieve in part depends on how you select your patients and whether or not you take advantage of 
improvements that have occurred in treatment over time. And what I mean by that is that we now know from prospective randomized trials that by giving chemotherapy preoperatively before surgery to shrink larger cancers in the breast, you can remove a much smaller piece of breast tissue end up with the same rates of cancer survival and local control, but a better cosmetic outcome than if you took out a great big chunk. The single most important thing in determining cosmetic outcome in breast-conserving surgery is how much of the breast you have to remove, not surprisingly. Now, what about in smaller cancers? Do they do that treatment likewise? It depends on the size of the cancer relative to the size of the breast. Most of the time, if you do surgery in a way that we've learned over time so that you save the fat underneath the skin, for example, you can take out a fair amount of breast tissue without making a big dent inside. So for most small tumors, giving chemotherapy preoperatively is not necessary, although for a patient who's going to receive it postoperatively anyway, there's no reason not to do it preoperatively if necessary. Now, how do you know that a patient is going to receive it postoperatively? Well, generally, we know that based on the size of the cancer. For example, if the cancer is estrogen receptor negative and it's over a centimeter in size, chemotherapy in this country is a pretty routine practice. If the cancer overexpresses HER2, because of the great benefits of trastuzumab or Herceptin in improving breast cancer survival, most of those women get chemotherapy postoperatively. So the only group where chemotherapy might not be routine are patients whose cancers overexpress the estrogen receptor and are node negative. And in fact, in those women, you can actually give anti-hormonal drugs, the aromatase inhibitors or tamoxifen, and shrink the tumor that way before surgery. Now, if you're planning oncoplastic or minimally invasive breast surgery, who actually performs the surgery? The oncologic surgeon, the plastic surgeon, or is it a team? Well, certainly for minimally invasive surgery, it's the oncologic surgeon. The whole idea behind oncoplastic surgery in many breast surgeons' minds is that they should do it all. Now, I will tell you that I have always considered cosmetic outcome an important part of the treatment of breast cancer, but I wouldn't formally say that I do oncoplastic surgery. I don't go around rearranging the inside of the breast, for example. Is there anyone who differs in their point of view? Oh, sure. There are a number of people who believe that oncoplastic surgery is an appropriate and good thing to do. And I think there we're driven by a fundamental disagreement about how much breast tissue you need to take out around a cancer to do a safe lumpectomy. And the data from the randomized trials, the only definition that was used of a negative margin in those trials was tumor cells not touching the ink, which means a very small negative margin. With a combination of radiotherapy, chemotherapy, anti-hormone therapy, with that small margin, we see very, very high rates of local control. People who favor the oncoplastic approach tend to believe that taking out a larger piece of breast tissue is beneficial, and therefore they have a much bigger hole in the breast that they need to fix, which is why they need to do oncoplastic surgery. If you have just joined us, you are listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and our guest is Dr. Monica Morrow, Chief of the Breast Service in the Department of Surgery and Chair of Clinical Oncology at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. 
We're discussing the balance of cosmetic and curative outcomes in breast-conserving surgery. Now, tomorrow, what about the nipple when one has a malignancy that is close to the nipple? Does the nipple always have to be sacrificed? Well, traditionally, the nipple has been removed routinely as a part of mastectomy. Certainly, if you're doing breast-conserving surgery and you can get a clear margin around the nipple, there's no reason to remove it just because the cancer is nearby because you're going to give radiation anyway. For mastectomy, so-called nipple-sparing mastectomy is something that's been under study. And in patients who don't have a lot of ductal carcinoma in situ coming right up into the nipple, several series suggest that maybe it is safe to save the nipple. But there is a small risk of cancer recurrence there, and you need to tell patients that doing that usually causes a loss of sensation in the nipple. The nipple oftentimes loses its erectile function, and it may lose its color as well. Are there examples of research that actually may fall short of the rigorous oncologic evaluation needed, such as skin-sparing mastectomies, things like that? Well, I think skin-sparing mastectomies we accept. Early-stage breast cancer is not a disease of the skin envelope, and if you're doing a mastectomy where you're looking at that plane between the breast and the subcutaneous fat, you can certainly save the skin to facilitate reconstruction and help to make the scars smaller, and that's something that's being done widely in practice for a good 10 years at least, and we have follow-up that suggests that's safe. My concerns would be around some newer procedures, for example, so-called endoscopic mastectomy where you stick an endoscope in through a small incision in the axilla and use that to remove the breast tissue because there you really don't have the same level of view of the skin and we have no follow-up data to tell us whether or not that increases the risk of local recurrence. How do they determine how much breast tissue to remove endoscopically? Well, sometimes they're trying to remove all the breast tissue, so they're doing an endoscopic total mastectomy, and people have also reported endoscopic partial mastectomies where in one series that comes from Japan, they just arbitrarily took out a quarter of the breast. Now, there's no reason to take that much tissue for small cancers, so it's hard to know how they came to that conclusion. Now, as a surgeon, I recognize when I do uh, excisional breast biopsies, the way I fill in the hole, so to speak, is by mobilizing tissue and bringing planes back together. When you do it endoscopically, how do they fill in the contour abnormality? (laughs) Well, sometimes what they do is actually go down to the level of the pectoralis muscle at the back of the breast and mobilize the breast endoscopically and repair it that way. There is some concern that when you do those kind of rearrangements, you actually lose your lumpectomy cavity, which is the very place where you would like to give a boost dose of radiation to maximize the likelihood of local control. So that's one of the concerns about those approaches. Are there any other examples of research that are falling short of rigorous oncologic evaluation? Well, I think there are many, many small studies that are published that get published because they're interesting technical feats. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it is the obligation of reviewers and editors when the authors conclude based on treating 20 or 50 patients and following them for 
a year or two that this is a great procedure which should be adopted by everyone, that that conclusion cannot be justified by such small numbers and such short follow-up. How do these uh, results seem to get into the lay press so easily? (laughs) Well, I think everyone loves gadgets, (laughs) and everyone loves the idea of avoiding surgery. So these are very attractive approaches. And I think a key thing to keep in mind is something new we've learned in the last few years. We used to believe that if you did inadequate breast surgery and you had a local recurrence, It didn't matter because you could always do a mastectomy. Well, it turns out it does matter that for every four local recurrences you prevent five years after diagnosis, you will save one life at 15 years. So treatments that do not result in local control have the real potential to harm patients. So when we talk about safety standards for these procedures, where are we right now? What should they be? Well, you know, it's interesting because these procedures are just sort of considered under the same title as doing a mastectomy. So it's not like using a new drug where you have to have an approval or an indication. And so certainly if you're going to do these kind of procedures, patients should be informed that they are experimental, that we don't have long-term follow-up, and ideally they should be done under IRB approval as part of a study. So when a patient comes to you as one of the experts in the United States on breast cancer and they say, Dr. Morrow, I just want the most minimal surgery possible for my breast cancer, how do you approach that patient? I mean, that's my goal too, the most minimal surgery. So it's just a matter of how we do it. And so what I will say is my goal is to treat your cancer in the safest and most effective way that we know. And in doing that, I will try to do it in such a way that We preserve the best possible cosmetic appearance, but it is not reasonable to believe you can have cancer treated and never know what happened. Do you see that this issue of cosmesis as becoming even more prominent in the future? Possibly. I think that, you know, still for the majority of women with breast cancer, being cured of their cancer is their primary concern. There are, however, a small subpopulation of women for whom cosmesis is very, very important. And I think the better we get, the higher the expectations become. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Monica Morrow. We've been discussing the balance of cosmetic and curative outcomes in breast-conserving surgery. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and you have been listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. And thank you for listening.